today I'm gonna do something slightly different, different to you guys, not different to me. Um, and when I saw the topic that um, Pastor Adam wanted us to all speak on, on one on one hand, I was happy because it's a topic that's very um, like near and dear to my heart. Um, and something I get very passionate about. But on the other hand, as has been the fashion of every single sermon he's preached this semester, it has been a topic that's difficult to speak on. Um, and it can cause some serious emotion to rise up in us. So um, my prayer is that we can all... Um, Listen to what Jesus has to say. And I didn't really prepare for today in the sense that I didn't like write a lesson. Um, there's my notes. It's mainly just scripture. Um, and the reason for that is because this topic is really close to my heart, I wanted to speak to you guys from my heart. And I... Hope and pray it comes across as I as I truly mean it and I intended to. And I pray that you will you will hear the truth and that the truth will set you free. Um, so I may have missed it, but I don't know if Pastor Adam actually gave a sermon title on Sunday. Um Jordan and I were watching it together and about like 15 minutes in, she's like, what's the title? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know if he said it. Um, I mean, I could tell what the topic was, but I don't remember him saying a title. So uh, since we were going through the Christian Atheist series, I decided to uh, rename this week's lesson in the same vein that we've been doing so far. And so I've called it... Uh, I believe in God, but I don't let him own me. And I thought of a lot of different titles I could have given it. And uh, I prayed to the Holy Spirit and I'm like, you, you pick something. That's what he picked. That's what he told me to say. So we're going to go with that. Um, so I'm not going to ask a traditional icebreaker question. I'm going to rather... Um, open up like a question to the floor and I would like to hear from you guys what either you or what society um, and most modern, modern Christianity believes are the qualifications or expectations of a Christian. Like what are the things that like the checkbox, you need to do this, this and this or believe this or whatever. And once you fall in that box, I classify you as a Christian. You don't have to give all the things. You can just like, you know, shout them out Go as you think of them. Go to church. Okay? That's true. Believe. Believe. Anything else? 
be kind, be morally upright. Mm-hmm. Read the Bible, yeah. Be honest. <clears throat> be honest. Share a te- testimony of your salvation experience. Yeah, share your faith, yeah. Pray. Pray. <laughs> Especially before meals. I like it. Can you speak now, Drew? <laughs> Thank you. Okay. I was going to say, like, uh, lead by example. Mm-hmm. One more from anyone? Drew, don't forget to mute again. Nothing? Yes, Alyssa? Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, I guess I feel like Christians don't, like, swear excessively, like, cuss a lot. <laughs> okay. So, none of you are wrong. All those things should be evident in a Christian's life. But... What I found interesting is what Jesus had to say a Christian was. Because a Christian means a little Christ. means to be like him. And if our religion is totally based on following the sayings of Jesus, then his opinion on what a Christian should look like, what a disciple should look like, should be the most important opinion. And it should be the one that we base our beliefs off of and that we compare ourselves to. And tonight, as usual, we're going to read a lot of scripture. But tonight we're really going to read a lot of scripture. Because I don't really want you to hear too much of what I have to say. I want you just to listen to what he said. Um, I have a lot of scripture that I'm going to be reading, and I'm going to be reading all of it. Um, If you would like to follow, uh, I think that would be a good thing, just so that you can see I'm not lying. But what I would ask is this. If you're going to follow reading the scripture with me, on your phone uh, or computer, pull up... uh, the New King James Version. And the reason I say that is purely because I don't know if you've experienced this, but when someone is reading a passage and you're following in your own Bible and they have a different translation, whenever theirs differs to yours, it for that split second throws you off, right? Because you're like, and then you have to like gather your thoughts again. Um, and what I want to happen tonight is I don't want that to happen. I just want you to listen to God's word and not worry about, oh, where is she now? And, oh, that's missing in mine. Or, oh, mine says this different word. I I just want you to be able to soak in everything that he's saying. So if you're going to follow, please look up New King James Version so that we're reading exactly the same thing as each other. Um, 
I am going to like have a pause between each verse just so that you can look it up or write it down if you want to. Um, and I may comment in between. I don't know. Like I said, I didn't prepare. I just, I prepared the verses and that's all I did. So I don't really know this is how this is going to go. But there might be a few awkward silences and that's because I want you to be able to think about what Jesus is saying. And then at the end, we'll see what the Holy Spirit does and we'll see if we discuss it or, or if I go off on a tangent or whatever. But the most important part is hearing what he has to say. His words are the only things that matter anyway. It doesn't really matter what I have to say. Who cares about my opinion? I'm no one. But he's God. Everything he says matters. A lot of the stuff is going to be repetitive because I literally went through all the Gospels and I picked out every single time that I could find Jesus refer to what it is to be a disciple, what it is to follow him. And I didn't want to leave anything out. So there is going to be repetition. You'll see some of the same things he said or some of the same stories that he told in two different or three different Gospels. Um, but it's good to hear it more than once because I want it to sink in. And, and in fact, if you hear it more than once, that's actually a good indication that multiple of his disciples thought it important enough to remember that thing and then write it down again, right? Okay, so here we go. The first one I'm going to be reading is Mark 12, verse 28 to 34. Mark 12, 28 to 34. Thanks, Rachel. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he, being Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment, and the second is like it. Is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher. You have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. It's interesting to me that when Jesus is questioned on this and he gives the two greatest commandments, here is a scribe who agrees with him. And I would say if he agrees, then hopefully he was he was living that. But Jesus doesn't turn to him and say, 
you're saved. You're a disciple. You're in the kingdom of God. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. That feels to me like he's saying, these things are definitely requirements. Loving God with everything you have. And loving your neighbor as yourself. But that alone is not enough. And the reason I think he says that is because one, we can say that we do. But if our actions don't show the same, then what we've just said is not true. The next scripture is Matthew 10, verse 7 to 42. It's really long, but it's good. Matthew 10, verse 7 to 42. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts, nor bags for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor stocks, for a worker is worthy of his food. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which is a devil, how much more will they call those of this household? Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. 
And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from the Father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones only a cold cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly I say to you, he shall by no means lose his reward. The next scripture is Mark 8, verse 34 to 38. Mark 8, verse 34 to 38. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Uh, Deborah, can you please mute your mic? The next. You need, to, you need me to mute it? Yes, please. Okay. The next scripture is Mark 10, verse 17 to 30. Mark 10, verse 17 to 30. Deborah, I don't think your mic is muted. Is it? Okay, maybe it's just my screen that's not showing it. Okay, that's fine. Okay, Mark 10, verse 17 to 30. 
Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of heaven? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Brothers, houses, sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Very interesting thing he said at the end there, but we won't discuss it now. Uh, the next verse is Luke 18, verse 18 to 30. Uh, Deborah, I think you have unmuted again. Luke 18, verse 18 to 30. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want you guys to listen. I know we're, this is now a repeat of the same story. But here is a person who to Jesus' face asks him, What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the same as asking, What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be a Christian? What must I do to be a disciple? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That one is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful, he said, 
How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Who then can be saved? But he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Then Peter said, See, we have left all and followed you. So he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. The next one is Luke 9, verse 23 to 26. Luke 9, verse 23 to 26. Then he said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what, profits, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. Next verse, Luke 9, verse 57 to 62. Luke 9, verse 57 to 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the bed let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Luke 10, verse 1 to 11. Luke 10, verse 1 to 11. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also, so 70 disciples, and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Neither carry money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. 
Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, the very dust of your city, which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near you. Luke 12, verse 15 to 34. I wasn't joking when I said we were going to read a lot of scripture. Luke 12, verse 15 to 34. If you are nodding off and falling asleep, I would slap yourself through the face and try to pay attention. Don't get lost in the lull of hearing words. Focus your spirit on what is being said. Luke 12, 15 to 34. And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetedness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then those, then whose will those things be which you have provided? So who will they belong to now that you're dead? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Then he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, nor about the body, what you will put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, and God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind. For all these things the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell what you have and give alms, Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Next is Luke 14, verse 26 to 31. Uh, 35, sorry. Luke 14, verse 26 to 35. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him, with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, Whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We're going to camp there. We have been conditioned to believe that if we check off certain boxes, that we're fine. And unfortunately, those boxes that have slowly been added to over time and changed by different people, different denominations, different government authorities from all over the world, are very far from what we see in scripture. If you ask someone today, are you a Christian? And they say, yes. And you say to them, how do you know? I'm willing to bet you that most people will say, I said a prayer once. And I gave my heart to Jesus. Now I'm not against altar calls. But nowhere in scripture, not once, does Jesus ever say that if you give your heart to him, you're saved. You're his disciple. It is interesting and extremely challenging to me that every time Jesus was asked what it is to be his disciple, what it takes to follow him, he gave the same answers. He said, you have to lose your life. You have to forsake all you have. You have to take up your cross and follow me. He never said, say a prayer. 
He never said, take me into your heart. You see, modern Christianity has told us there, there's, a, there's a separation between a disciple and a believer. You can be a believer and believe in God and love him, but like being a disciple is being a follower, and that's like the next level of Christianity, right? If you, if you do these certain things, if you live a certain lifestyle, you're a more mature Christian, you're a disciple, you know, but, but there's a difference. There's believers and there's disciples and we should become disciples, but you can still be a believer and, and not really be what Jesus said was a disciple. That distinction is nowhere in, in, in Christianity. In the Bible or in the history of the early church, there was no distinction. If you were a disciple, you followed Jesus' teachings on how to be a disciple. And that was to take up your cross daily and follow him it was to give up all you had and give your life to him it was that he was not just your savior he was your lord unfortunately most of us as modern christians we stop at savior we're happy that jesus saved us but we never get past the savior part he is 100% our Savior, but He is also 100% our Lord. Now, if that word doesn't mean anything to you, let's go back to medieval times. A Lord was a person in charge of a large section of land. And on that land, He had tenants. And those tenants worked the land. The land that they worked was not theirs. It belonged to the Lord. The Lord made the rules. Any tenant that broke the rules, a huge array of punishments could be used. Anything from a penalty fee to death. He set the taxes. I mean, you had really evil lords that if they wanted your wife, they'd just rush in and take her. If they wanted to take your children to be their slaves in their personal household, you couldn't do anything. You served your Lord. Your Lord was your commander. Now, if you had a good Lord, the same things applied, except he was just and fair and kind, and he protected you from outside harm. So if you lived on his land and you lived according to his rules, he protected you. So when Jesus is saying he's our Lord, and when we call him Lord, it should mean to us, that we view him the way a Lord should be viewed. A Lord sets the rules. A Lord gets to decide what happens on his territory. A tenant does not decide what they want to do with the land. They own no property. They work the property. They live on the property. They raise a family on the property, but they do not own it. And at any moment, the Lord can take it. There is no difference between that. And Christianity. You see, Jesus saved us. And he saved us from something. But he also saved us unto something. You see, we were slaves to sin. That's what the word of God says. We were slaves to sin. And I've said this in one of my other teachings. You are always a slave. Always. 
You can only choose your master. Before we were saved, we were slaves to sin. When Jesus frees us, when he saves us, he's not freeing us for freedom's sake. He is freeing us so that we can become a slave to him. Now, if that word sets you off, let's again go to scripture. Romans 6 verse 22. Romans 6 verse 22. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. Clear as day, slave. You have become slaves of God, not servant. You see, a servant is different. A servant serves, but at any moment, if a servant decides they don't like who they're serving, they can quit and go serve someone else. A slave does not have that freedom. A slave is bought. Bought. That means they belong to whoever bought them. They do whatever the person who bought them tells them to do. They can try to run away. It's a dangerous decision for the slave, not for the owner. And again, if the slave has a good master, the slave will live a happy life. In fact, he'll probably live the equivalent to the life a servant does, except that he cannot leave. A slave with a terrible master will not be able to leave and suffer violence. If you do not serve Jesus, you are a slave to sin. The devil is your master and he is your taskmaster. He is your Lord. You can escape from that, but then your Lord becomes Jesus and he gets to decide what happens in your life. You don't own it anymore. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20, it says, or do, you, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You are not your own. You were bought at a price, a very, very expensive price. God dying for you. That was the price to save you. And you are not your own anymore as a result. I've also told some of you this story before, but in ancient times, there was an understanding that if someone saved you from death, say you were drowning or in a fire in a house and someone ran in to save you. When you came to, you would say to that person, I am now your bond servant, which is the equivalent of a slave. I am your bond servant. What that means is I should have died. My life should have ended today. But since you saved me, whatever is left of my life, I now give to you to serve you. 
And bondservant is actually a word that's used over and over in scripture in their original versions. And it's used interchangeably with slave because they mean the same thing. However, a bondservant is a person that chooses to be a slave. Okay? That bondservant, it's as if they are dead. They would forsake their family, their job, everything they had to serve the person who saved them. Because in their mind, they would have died that day anyway. So there's no point going back to their job or their family or their ex-life because they wouldn't have gone back anyway. They owe their life to this person. Now that's a concept that's totally been lost in our culture. We don't have that anymore. But you gotta understand, this is the, the type of culture that the writers of the Bible grew up in. This is the type of culture that Jesus was teaching in. There was an understanding that if someone saved your life, you owed them your life. In Galatians 2 verse 20 it says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. When you got saved, you were crucified with Christ. You no longer live. Christ lives in you. You are not your own. That means every action you take should be what Christ would take. If he is living in you, you are a dead body. Think of yourself as some kind of freaky Frankenstein. All right? He is indwelling you. He should control everything. Every movement, every thought, every word, every decision, every action. That is truly living in Christ. That is truly dying to him. That is what taking up your cross daily to follow him looks like. The cross is not something you put on a necklace. The cross is something you die on. Jesus was saying, take up your cross daily and follow me. He didn't say put it on your neck. He didn't say put it at the front of your church or on your walls or on your notepads or stickers on your car. He said, take it up and follow me. What was he saying? He was saying, take the thing that will kill you and carry it on you every day. Die on it every single day. Every day when you go back to thinking you're in charge of your own life, die on that cross. Every time you think you're in control, die on that cross. Every time you think you don't need him, you saved yourself, die on that cross. That's why he says daily, not once, not the day you get saved. Every day you take that cross and you follow him. We are his slave. And that doesn't have to be a bad word. I went today and I looked up my Greek, which I love to do. If you guys don't have eSword on your computers, get it. It's free and you'll be able to do crazy word searches and find things in the different languages and see what they mean. Uh, in our language, we have a lot of words that are the same. Um, 
but in the original they were different and you don't have to study Greek or Hebrew to find this out. You can get that app, E-Sword, like E the letter, dash, sword, like kill people sword. And you can go up there and you can, um, by default, it has King James, which is the one that has the Hebrew and Greek translations next to it. And every single word has a little number next to it. You click on it and it says Greek or Hebrew is phileo meaning blah, 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 used 722 times. So you can actually see how many times a word is used. You can see when in scripture the same type of word is used in different places, even though in the English they may have translated it differently. Anyway, shameless plug. Um, the reason I'm bringing that up is I went to go look up uh, in scripture where it says servant, right? The New Testament, uh, specifically in the gospel, and not the gospels, the letters, where it says, this person is a servant of Christ, servant, 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 I'm a servant, you're a servant. And I went to go look up that word just to check whether it really was servant. Uh, because in the uh, Old King James, it's definitely not servant, it's slave. And I looked it up, and there are distinct differences in those letters for the word servant, which is used in certain context, um, like when it's literally referring to someone whose job is a servant, there's a word for it that is different to when people were saying that Christian is a servant. And the difference was this one meant servant. This one, the literal translation is slave or bond servant. Multiple Christians were referred to as slaves and it wasn't a negative thing. Multiple people opened their letters by saying, me, a slave of Christ. Here's some examples. Paul said he was a slave. Jude said he was a slave. Peter said he was a slave. James said he was a slave. And those are just the ones that started their letters saying it. This is not including in the letters saying Rachel was a slave. Cleopas was a slave. Whoever was a slave. And they're not meaning their jobs. They're saying slave of Christ. We should have a servant heart. That's part of Christianity. But I think the problem is because we put the servant thing so heavily on us. We've forgotten that deep down it's really not servanthood. We are bought. We are slaves. We are bond servants. You really only have one choice. Like slaves don't have choice. But you have one. You have one and one only. You get to choose. Am I a slave to Satan? Or am I a slave to Christ? That's the only decision you get. From then on, every other decision is made for you. If you choose to be a slave to Satan, you might think you're making decisions, but he's leading you down a road that he wants you to walk down, which will lead to your destruction. If you choose to become a slave to Christ, you no longer make the decisions. You no longer have a say. But you have a good master who's leading you towards goodness and righteousness and truth and holiness and ultimately joy. Now, the question is you have to decide do you want to be his slave? 
Because that's what being a Christian is. And I'm sorry that for many of us, many of you probably on this call, the gospel was never presented to you that way. You were never told that, yes, God is loving and forgiving and you get to like give up uh, all these things that are holding you back and you get this love and this freedom and this joy. But at the same time, you are taking on everything else that he wants for your life. And it might not be things that are fuzzy and nice and make you feel good. A lot of them are going to really hurt, at least initially. And you need to die to all the things that you want. When I um, am trying to lead someone to Christ, if you know me, you'll know this, I never rush anyone into a salvation prayer. I think it is the worst thing that you can do for their salvation um, because you risk them becoming a lukewarm Christian. You risk them not counting the cost of what it is to serve Jesus. So I will spread the word. I mean, I gave you guys two hours worth of how to do it last week. I do it. I tell people about Jesus. I want people to get saved. I want them to live for him. But I don't want them to rush their decision. If you ask anyone that I've personally led to Christ, they will tell you, I did not force them to say any prayer. I said, you need to get to a point where you deeply desire him to be your Lord. Where you will forsake everything that holds you back. Every sin, every selfish desire, everything. And then decide you will follow him. Knowing that with that decision comes persecution and hardships. And the fact that you no longer live. He lives in you. You don't get to make those decisions anymore. You don't get to choose where you live. You don't get to choose who you marry. You don't get to choose your job. You don't get to choose your ministry. You don't get to choose your house or your car or your possessions. Every decision gets to be his. Now remember, there's a difference between being a slave to an evil monster and being a slave to a good monster. If there is any fear in you when I'm saying these words, it is because the devil has lied to you about the type of master you serve. If you fear that when you do fully submit and say, take it all, whatever you want. If you fear, it's because you've been lied to. There's a part of you that believes he won't be good to you. That he will ask something of you that is unbearable. That he will mistreat you. That he will ask you to do things that grieve you and that you will live a life that is truly miserable. And I'm not saying that there won't be moments that you experience that. But ultimately, everything he ever asks you to do will be so that you are led down a path of life, peace, goodness, and joy. Jesus makes some crazy statements in all the scriptures we've just read. He says, sell everything you have, give everything to the poor, give everything up and follow me. And 
Look around you. Can anyone put out their hand and say they've done that? Anyone? If you have given up everything you have, then you're living according to what this says. Now, some of you might think, Cassandra, you're not. That's right. I haven't sold all my things and given it to the poor. And here, here's what I want to I wanna camp on. Trivia question. Do you know who uh, placed Jesus in the tomb after he died on the cross? There's two people, so you technically have two right answers. Anyone really know their Bible trivia? All right, Nicodemus, the one who's the, the Pharisee who sat down with him and um, who asked him, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of God? And he said, you have to be born again. Um, the second person was Joseph of Arimathea. And there's, uh, in one of the gospels, it literally says a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. A rich man and a disciple of Jesus. So, it's not impossible to be rich and to be a disciple. So, why did Jesus go and say all that stuff? Why did he say uh, it's more easy for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? It's because, and he elaborates this in all the verses we read, as you store up earthly possessions for yourself, if you are not careful, they will control you. They will be the things that you desire, the things you chase, the things you hold on to for your security and your trust. And basically it boils down to money. Everything boils down to that. I mean, every possession you have, it boils down to money, right? If I have money, I'm safe. And Jesus is saying, the more money you have, the harder it is. And that's true. I mean, I'll be honest. When I was a student, it was really easy. It was really easy, easy to have faith because I didn't have anything anyway. So like, I just had to trust God for everything. But the more money you get, the harder it gets to keep trusting, to keep trusting, to keep giving, right? Because let's say you get $100 a month, 10%, $10, I'm poor anyway. You know, what's $10 going to do? But you earn a million a month, you know, and you have to give, what's that? 10,000 or is it 100,000? Gosh, my math. 100. <laughs> I studied math. Can you believe it? It's late. Um, giving that much money, it's still 10%, but that's a lot. That's a lot of money, right? And it gets harder the more you have. If, if Jesus says to a super poor person, give up all you have and follow me, they're like, what? My sleeping bag? okay, I can do this. But ask someone living in a mansion, give up all you have and follow me. That's a lot of stuff I have to give up, Jesus. You sure about that? So then, if we all have to give up everything, right? Why was Joseph of Arimathea, why did it say he was a rich man and a disciple? So here's what I'll pose to you. 
I'm going back to my analogy of the Lord and his tenants. The tenants living on the land were diverse. You could have the richer tenants who had more land, more responsibility, even had people working under them. And then you had the poor tenants who barely had anything. But at the end of the day, nothing belonged to the tenants. The reason you can still be a rich person and be a disciple is not because Jesus lied when he said, give up everything, uh, forsake all you have and follow me. It's not because there's some crazy hidden meaning or loophole in that and oh, some people can and some people can't or it has to be your calling to give up everything and follow him. No, everyone has to. But then what the tenant, well, sorry, what the Lord chooses to bestow back to the tenant differs for each tenant. So you'll have some tenants who are rich. They have a lot. But at any second, the Lord can be like, I want it back. It's not really yours. Okay? So, the important thing is the attitude. Look when Jesus was talking to um, all those people who came and said, uh, I'll, I'll read it again. Uh, it was in Luke 9. Um one person said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And what did Jesus say to him? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Why do you say that? Why do you say I have no place to sleep? Because he knew to that person, that was the thing that would get them to say, no, I don't want to follow you anymore. I can't imagine not having a bed to sleep. I need to sleep in a bed. Next person said, or actually in the next one, he says to someone else, follow me. And then they say, okay, but let me first go and bury my father. Jesus says, no, let the dead bury their own dead. Then the next person says, I will follow you, but first let me go and, and say goodbye to those who are at my house. Jesus says, no one putting their hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. For the, um, for the scribe or the rich man, depending on which gospel you're reading, who... Uh, answered all the questions correct about I, I honored my father and mother I've never committed adultery I've loved the Lord the God, my God with all my heart all my soul all my mind blah 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 he matched all those things Jesus said cool now sell all your things and follow me why? why in that case? in all these cases Jesus looked at the one thing that that person loved more than him and said give it up if you can have the mindset of a tenant you won't mind giving something up because you knew it wasn't yours in the first place. Jesus wants followers who say, everything I have, whether much or little, isn't mine. That means, Lord, you can come at any moment and give or take. It doesn't matter to me because it's never been mine. So for some people, On the surface, they have riches, but they're obeying this commandment because they've said to God, you can have whatever you want. If you want to come and take it, take it. I uh, read the other day that Rick Warren, um, when his first book became famous, uh, Purpose Driven Life, he had said to God, 
um, that he, he was terrified because he said, I, I'm scared of what fame and money will do to me. And so he decided then that he wouldn't take any of the money that comes from the book. And then he started speaking and going around and he said, um, you know, then I had another thing. Now I'm becoming famous. I never wanted to be famous. Um, and I had all this money coming and I didn't know what to do because, you know, I know what Jesus says about it. And, and, I, and, and I didn't want to fall into that trap that so many people fall into when they get rich. So him and his wife decided from that first day before they were where they are now, which is technically millionaires. They said the house we live in now is the house or at least the standard of house that we will live in till the day we die. We will never buy a more expensive house. We will stay in this type of house. We will never take a certain amount of money. I think they said a percentage like 95% uh, of everything that we own, we will give away. They made strict stipulations on we're still going to live like normal people, even though we're really rich because this money is not ours. It's God's. So all of us look at him and say he is rich and he is rich, but he doesn't own those possessions. He's given it all to God and he says, take it. You can do what you want with it. It's not mine. So you can have a rich person who has given everything they have to God. But you can have a poor person, a really poor person who has nothing. You can have a homeless person on the street who is not doing this, who is not giving everything they have to God. Because it's not what you have that defines whether you're obeying this commandment. It's, this, it's the attitude that you have towards God. Right now, I live in a house. I have a decent job. And I have a car. And I have food. And you know what? If I want a chocolate, I can buy myself a chocolate. I have that kind of money. But I have said to God, not only now, my whole life since I became a Christian, anything that I have is yours. If you want it, take it. And you know what? Sometimes he's taken it. Sometimes he has. I've said to him, if you want me to sell everything, I'll do it. You just got to convince my husband because I have to submit to him too. So you better tell him the same thing. But I'll do it. You want me to go to the Middle East and spread the gospel? I will do it. You want me to die for the faith? I will do it. You want me to be homeless? I will do it. I will do whatever you want me to do. No matter how hard, no matter what I have to give up. Because I love you above all things. And that's what that scripture is about when he says, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your sister, your wife, your brother, your children, you are not worthy of him. And he cannot call you his disciple. It's not because he's saying you have to hate them. He's saying that your love for me must be so great that in comparison... When you view your love, com your love for me compared to your love for them, they should be so far apart that they look like opposites, that it looks like you hate everyone else in comparison to your love for me. And so in my love for God, I would give up anything. And honestly, sometimes I wish he would tell me to do it. I would love to go to the middle of nowhere and every day not know where everything is coming from. Because let me tell you, that is the best place to see God perform miracles. When you cannot 
do anything for yourself, that is when the Holy Spirit can really move. You want to see a miracle every day? You want to hear God? You want to see Him move? Literally give up everything you have. Till all you can do is trust Him. I don't know where my food's going to come. God has to provide it. I don't know what clothes I'm going to wear. God has to provide it. I don't know where I'm going to sleep. God has to provide it. That's when you can see miracles come. The less you have, the more He forms miracles in your life. So part of me would love that. Go to the Middle East. Preach the word. Not know any day where I'm going to get caught, persecuted, put in a dungeon, killed. I would... I would do it. Like, I actually desire that. I like that. I want that. Like, to be a martyr for Christ, for me, that is, like, the biggest honor that I could ever be given is to die for him. But at this point, he hasn't called me to that. But he still has full control of everything I have. If he said, sell my car, I would sell it. If he said, move into a one-bedroom apartment, in the creepiest area of town, I would do it. And I have practiced this attitude slowly but surely throughout my Christian life. Now, this isn't only possessions. Like I said earlier at the beginning, it's relationships, it's goals, it's mindsets, it's things that you want. And those things I definitely have been asked to give up. I've so many times been on my knees, on the floor of my room, crying out to God, begging him, please don't take this thing from me. Please, I want it. I love it so much. Please don't. Please don't take it. Please don't make me give it up. Please, I beg of you. And I have cried and I've worshipped and I've pleaded with him. And he has taken it or he has required me to give it up. In that moment, it hurt so bad. And in my mind, there was no logical reason why he would ask those things. But every time I looked back on those situations, I praised him that he asked me to give those things up. Something good always came from it. Something better always came from it. Always, always, always. And that thing didn't always look like a physical thing. It wasn't always... Oh, you gave up this physical thing. Now a equal but better physical thing is going to come. Sometimes it would have been a, a spiritual thing that I had to give up. And then a spiritual reward would come. Or sometimes it would be a physical thing that I had to give up. But a spiritual reward would, would come for me giving up that physical thing. But whatever I received from God was so much better than whatever he asked me to give up. And that is the difference between having a master or a Lord that is good versus having a master or a Lord who is evil and bad. And you may not want to serve God this way. You may not want to have that kind of attitude where you just give everything up. But then by default, you choose the other master because you can only have one. You can only be a slave to one person. You can be a slave to sin and Satan or a slave to Jesus. I implore you, pick the latter. He is the way, way, way better choice between the two. Have that attitude of whatever he wants is his. Because when we start living like this, this is when we truly look 
like the New Testament church. This is when we truly look like Christians. If you read the New Testament church, and I've also spoken on this before, but they did this. They gave up everything they had, but they had all things in common. That doesn't mean all of them became missionaries. It doesn't mean all of them gave up their jobs. It doesn't mean that they weren't some rich people among them. It means that they gave it away so that everyone could have in common everything. This meant that if I was a doctor, I would give most if not all of my earthly possessions that I didn't need or sometimes even that I did need away and sell it and give that money to the group and I would provide my services as a doctor to the group. That means if anyone needed health stuff, they could come to me and I wouldn't charge them. If I, same if I was a farmer and I had produce. Either I would sell my land, give it up, become full-time in ministry, or I would sell a lot of it, give that money to the common cause, and then use the fruit that I did get, which would naturally increase because I'm giving it to God and he always blesses that. Give that food to everyone who's hungry within the church. Same with anything. You need someone to look after your kid. There's the, good, the, the woman down the street who's good with kids. She's a Christian. You can go to her. No charge. You need something sewed. Your garment is torn. That lady over there, she's a Christian. She does it. No charge. Why? Because everyone had everything in common. So the mindset we have that is so scared to give something up, you know why we're scared? It's because no one else gives it up. Because if everyone gave everything up, if everyone had everything in common, even though we had nothing, we would have everything. Because why do I need money? For food, I get it from the farmer. For medical, I get my care from a doctor. For my child's education, I get it from the university lecturer for free. Like, if we all had the mindset that every gift I have is from God and to God, and every possession I have is not mine, but his, and therefore I give it back to him and his kingdom, we would never lack anything. Now, the, the sad reality is we don't live in a world where that's a reality anymore. Christians don't do that. That's not an excuse for us not to aim towards that. And it starts with us living it out. What if we, just us, I can't see how many people are on the call because you're half of my screen. But if the 10 of us, however many we are, even if we just did it, right, within ourselves, how much would that already save us? Just in money, right? What if Rachel never charged me to do my hair? I'm not putting any pressure on anyone when I say this. I'm just giving an example, right? What if... Uh, I had a wedding and I said, Troy, can you come do it for free, right? What if anytime someone needed like data analytics for their business, I did it for free. What if anytime someone needed IT blah, 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 they asked Drew. What if anytime someone needed something creative design, like a logo for their business or art or whatever, they asked Eric and it was given for free. Do you see like even just in our little group, how much that would save you and save me if we all did it that way? If we all had that mentality that nothing I have is truly mine, but everything belongs to the kingdom of God, how much it would change the reality that we live in. Now you might say, okay, Cassandra, but there's no doctor in the group. 
There's no farmer in the group. Where am I going to get my food? Where am I going to get my health care? That's why we have a Lord who owns everything in the land. And so we don't have to worry about where it's going to come from. I don't know how many of you read my testimony on Facebook that I posted, but I had said to the Lord, I really want to give more to you, but I honestly don't see how it's possible. You know, I have a very small amount of money left over that is like my own personal spending money. And it's so little that if I give of it, like, honestly, it'll hurt me. And in the long run, I don't know if that's wise. But here's the thing, God, I want to give. Like, I deeply, deeply want to give more. Like, I, I've always given my tithe, but I want to give more. Like, I, I want to be the type of person that that really gives money, like, to a missionary who's, like, giving their life for Jesus, who's doing that thing that I want to do, but I can't do right now, or maybe ever, because he might not call me to it. But if I can, like, help a missionary who's risking their life for you, that would be so amazing. And I said to him, but I'll be honest, I'm a human and I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared that I do give all this money and you like leave me high and dry. And you're like, it's great that you're giving that money, but I'm not giving you anything extra, you know? And so I said to him, I'm going to pull a Malachi 3 on you and I'm going to test you, God. I've never done it before. I've never asked you for this before, but this time I'm testing you. Please show me that you will give if I give, and then if you do, I promise, I will find a way to give, even if I have to give till it hurts me. If I can just, if you can just give me this little boost of faith that you will be faithful, and I don't have to worry, even though I know it in my head, but it's really hard in my heart to believe it. If you can just do this thing for me, I promise, I will, I will give more money than I already give. And I didn't know how he was gonna do it, because it's not like I was gonna take a second job and, but I, and I'm, I'm an analytical person, so I really started thinking, oh, how's he going to figure this out? Like, I mean, I mean, what possible ways are there? Started thinking of all the ways he couldn't do it. And I was like, no, like he's God, he'll figure it out, right? Like if he truly wants to do it, he'll do it. Um, and then two days ago, uh, I got a check in the mail for a very, very, very large sum of money, over $3,000 for a lawsuit that I joined, like a class action, whole bunch of us um, against like a, an all pay company that was paying us like below minimum wage. We're getting like $4 an hour uh, and working 45 hours a week. And so, and none of us coming in knew that minimum wage in America was like double that, um, at least here. And we didn't know what we were getting into and so we felt it was unfair and these au pair companies hadn't changed their wages since like 1990 something and uh they weren't really listening to the au pairs and one au pair decided she's gonna go to court and then it became a huge class action thing with like hundreds of thousands of au pairs who've ever been an au pair joining now i joined it in 2017 i think long ago and you know these things can drag on forever and i honestly one i thought i wasn't getting any money because we had to like 
after they won the case, which was, uh, I don't know, beginning of last year, the end of the previous year, I can't remember, it's just been so long. We had to submit like our most recent, like pay information, blah, 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 so they could send the money, not telling us how much it was. And I did that, but I was talking to another au pair and she's like, oh, did you get a confirmation email? And I'm like, no, I didn't. And by the time she'd said that to me, it was past the date for you to submit it. And so I was like, oh no, like, I don't know if they got my, my information. And so I made peace in my heart that I was not getting money. Um, on top of that, Eric and I had calculated, like, we took how much the, the lawyer, the lawsuit won. We minus how much we knew the lawyers took. We minus how much the people who testified in the case were each getting. And then we divided the remainder between all the au pairs in the lawsuit. And at the most, I would have got $400. But it was more likely that I was going to get $100. And I mean, $100 is $100. I'm not going to scorn it, right? But I'm also not going to cry crocodile tears if my check for $100 disappears. It wasn't mine in the first place, so who cares? But to get that check and to see such a large amount on it, I bawled my eyes out, not so much because God gave me money, but because in that moment I had a full heart realization that he is fully able to do whatever he wants to do, regardless of what my mind thinks is real or logical, doesn't matter. Like he can do anything that he wants. And I know, I always knew in my head, like Job said, you know, I, I'd heard of you, but now, now I, I see you for myself. I know you for myself. In my head, I'd always believed that if I was extravagant with my giving up of everything I had, that God would be extravagant back. But now I saw it. So now I was just like, it was seeing him actually do what he promised to do. And that was so overwhelmingly beautiful for me. And I want to tell you guys that these sayings and the scriptures we read, I know some of them sound harsh. And I know maybe even I sound harsh. And that is really not my intention. Like, my intention is not to sound mean or rude or judgmental. My heart is always the same thing with any person I preach to, with any message I give. I want you to know God. I want you to know Him like He was sitting in the room with you. I want you to know Him like you know your best friend. I want you to have conversations with Him. I want you to love Him more than anything you've ever had or will have in your entire life. But the truth is, to get there, Christ has set out a path. He has set out rules, regulations, stipulations, conditions, commands that at first seem hurtful, but ultimately they get you to where you're supposed to be. They get you in a deeper relationship with God. And so my heart for you is to look at these verses and for each of you, whether you're single or in a family, take it before God and, and ask him, what does this look like for me? And if God honestly says to you, you don't have to sell what you have right now, you can continue working, it's fine, just you know, tie this or give that or donate to this, but 
you can live your life the way you're living it right now, then you are, are adhering to these commandments. You check the boxes. Jesus' boxes, not the modern church's boxes of say a prayer or do this. You are submitting yourself to Jesus' checkbox. But if he does, once you bring this to him, if he has to say, I do want you to sell, literally sell everything. I do want you to move to another state or another country. I do want you to downgrade your house so that you can give more. If he does ask you to do something like that, I would pray that each of us, everyone, including myself and Eric, that we would obey that as hard as it may be. But the only reason that's hard is because possessions still have a hold on us. If we get to the point where we don't love anything in this world, if we literally, as the word says, if we hate it, if we hate everything in this world in comparison to him, no matter what we have to give up, it won't hurt us. It will be easy. Everyone likes to quote that, um, that verse. What is it now? It's eluding me. In Philippians, where it says, uh, I, can do, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. People like to use that as like a motivation for when they're going through something hard and you know, they, they want to say Jesus is going to get them through. And I don't think it's inappropriate to use it in that context. But if you read the verses before, that's not what Paul is speaking about. He's saying, I've been hungry and I've been fed. I've been persecuted and I've been fine. You know, and he goes through all these things, where situations where I've been okay, I've not been okay, I've been okay, I've not been okay. I've given up, I've received. I've given up, I've received. I've had nothing, I've had everything. But in all things I've learned to be content. For with Christ I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So he's saying, no matter where, whether I live in a certain point of my life where blessings are flowing and I have everything and I'm rich, or whether I have absolutely nothing. I am content because I can do all these things, have nothing and have everything through Christ who gives me strength. Uh, the last scripture I have to read is uh, also in Luke. Let's scroll down. Um, actually, I have two more, two more scriptures. Um, there uh, basically repeats Luke 13 verse 24 to 28 Luke 13 verse 24 to 28 strive to enter through the narrow gate for many I say to you will enter and not be able when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying Lord Lord open for us and he will say to you I do not know you where you are from then you will begin to say we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets but he will say to you i tell you i do not know you where you are from depart from me all you workers of iniquity there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see abraham and isaac and jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of god and yourselves thrust out and matthew 7 verse 21 to 27 Matthew 7, verse 21 to 27. It's basically a repeat of that. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. This is another scripture that I often hear preachers say, you know, build your house on the rock, build your house on the rock. And, and, it, and, the, and they always preach and it seems to have this connotation of believe in Jesus, build your faith on Jesus. But that's not what the scripture is saying. It's saying, build your house on the rock, which is a metaphor. What is like building your house on a rock? Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them is like a man who builds his house on the rock. And then whatever comes against that house will not prevail because you have heard and obeyed the things he has said. That means all the scriptures we just read, which are literally things he has said, not even like, oh, Paul said them, therefore we attribute them to God. Literally, red letters, the words of Jesus. He gave these commands, forsake everything. Take up your cross. Hate everyone in comparison to him. If you don't do those things, you are like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. And whenever something comes against it, it will fall and great will be its fall. In the beginning of that verse, it's a scary verse. It's a very scary verse. It says the people are saying, Lord, Lord. These are not people who are Muslims or atheists. They're calling him Lord, which means what? These are Christians, Christians. People who were in church, people who prayed, people who read the Bible, people who attended Christian events with you, people who listened to Christian music. It says here, people who prophesied, people who cast out demons, people who did wonders in his name. So people that look like us, one day they will stand before God. And he will say, I didn't know you. And how do we know who those people are? It says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, which means being without a law, living as if I didn't give you a law to obey. You can believe everything correct. But the proof that your belief is real is obeying his words. It's the fruit of your belief. In, uh, is it Peter? I might be wrong in my book here. Uh, or maybe it's James. I'm sorry, guys. I'm losing my thought on that. It says, um, Cassandra version. Not New King James version. Um, you say that uh, you can have faith without works. But I say to you, show me 
your faith without works. And I will show you my faith by my works. Works do not save you. Giving all your possessions to the poor does not save you. Giving up things that you love. Crucifying your flesh does not save you. Jesus saves you. Belief in him saves you. Trusting in him saves you. But the evidence that that has truly happened is that your life is one of following his teachings and his commands, no matter how difficult. If you remember a few weeks ago where I was speaking about where Jesus was saying, um, when he was talking about uh, he who doesn't eat my flesh and drink my blood is not worthy of me. And everyone who was following except the 12 left him at that point because they were so offended that he said that. And now remember, communion had not happened yet. So his disciples, I'm pretty sure, were just as freaked out, right? Here's a guy who just told us to be cannibals. Have we been following a cuckoo head? Like, what is going on, right? Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Everyone just left. It's only us 12. And Jesus says, are you going to go too? And they say, where will we go? You have the words of life. They didn't say, oh yeah, we're, we're chill with what you're saying. It doesn't bother, bother us. It doesn't offend us. No, they said, they basically said, Cassandra Virgin, well, you're God. Mm, you told us this is how it has to be. So what else are we going to do, right? Because we either follow you as God or we disobey you as God. So what are we going to do? You have the words of life. We're going to follow you. We're going to. Eat flesh and drink blood, I guess. <laughs> you know? And at that stage, that maybe looked really freaky to them. Right? I don't know how I'm going to feel about eating people. I don't know who's going to kill and who we're going to eat. But, okay. He's God, so he must be right. And then, however long later, few weeks, few months, he has the first communion, explains to them the meaning, and then they're like, oh, this is not cannibalism. This isn't so bad, right? It's a silly example, but the same is true. Every time Jesus asks you to do something that is weird, scary, offensive, crazy, once you've done it and gotten through it, you're going to look back on it and go, huh, that wasn't that bad. Actually, this is pretty frigging awesome, right? That might sound stupid, but it really is how it is. The most important take away from this lesson, and I believe that this was maybe the title of Adam's message was, we need to count the cost. There was only one scripture that I read about that. Um, and I'm going to read it again. Uh, it was in uh, Luke 14. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it lest after he has laid the foundation he is not able to finish all those who see it begin to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish he's talking and he's saying if you don't do this you cannot be his disciple this is a picture of his kingdom he's saying before you choose to follow me count the cost decide are you willing to do this, to follow me. Think about that tower, what it costs to build it. 
Now, think about that in modern terms. If you're going to build a house, if you think, oh, I'd like to build a house, are you going to go tomorrow and start building it? Like not checking your bank account, not calling up some contractors, not checking out quotes. You know what I'm saying? Each of us would take a really long time before we start building it, right? We'd save, we'd think about it, we'd talk about it with our spouse if we're married. We would uh, give up some of the things that we like because we need to now save up money for a, for a down payment. We'll get quotes from different people. We'll speak to different realtors. We'll start looking online for different things that we want. We plan it. We think about it. We consider it. But Jesus is saying this is an obvious thing you do before you build a tower or in one term before you go and build a house. And he's saying the exact same thing needs to be done when you're a disciple or technically before you become a disciple. Think about what it costs to follow Jesus. It's not cheap. It will cost you a lot. For some people, it will cost everything. But it'll be worth it because everything you have is not yours to begin with. I'm going to end with a quote. It's a long quote. Um, which I think sums up the solemnity, if that's the right word, <laughs> of it properly. Um, and it's a quote by a Christian author, um, John Stott, who wrote the book Basic Christianity. And he says this, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. If he offered men his salvation, he also demanded their submission. He gave no encouragement whatever to thoughtless applicants for discipleship. He brought no pressure to bear on any inquirer. He set irresponsible enthusiasts away empty. Luke tells of three men who either volunteered or were invited to follow Jesus, but no one passed the Lord's test. The rich young ruler, too moral, earnest and attractive, who wanted eternal life on his own terms, went away sorrowful with his riches intact, but neither life nor Christ as his possession. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called normal Christianity. In countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to become somewhat involved Enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life. 
while changing its pace and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. The message of Jesus was very different. He never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples and has asked every disciple since to give him their thoughtful and total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. Let's close in prayer. Jermichael. Lord, I want to thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us all together and allowing us to um, to learn more about you and your greatness or, or revisit your greatness, Lord. Um, thank you for this message and giving us the opportunity to really go back to the basics of what you require of us, um, what you call us to do, and um, just being able to reflect on the expectation um, that you've shed upon us, Lord. Um, I ask that we hold this message near and dear, and it's something that we not only um, take into consideration for today, but we put into action for the rest of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.